Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. We like to think of ourselves as the opposite of cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? It is going great, Lawrence. I have submitted all of my grades. Woo-hoo. I want you. I want you to insert like the celebration music from Cool and the Gang here, because that's kind of how I'm feeling. I'm doing a chair dance. I feel so so good. I feel I feel very relieved. I feel fantastic, and I think our students feel relieved and fantastic. Most of them do, at least. I think they're feeling good. Yeah, I don't think I gave too many bad grades this time. So. Yeah, I know. It was one of those. It was one of those academic years. It's just been a hard year. It has just been been. very, it has been a very hard year. Do you think we're going to be back to normal in the fall? It feels like we're going to be. Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I I think that, uh, I think that, you know, most Americans are going to be vaccinated. And I think that uh, we're going to be face to face. And um, it's just a much better way to teach. It's a much better way to learn. And um, and I'm excited for it. I really am. You know, and after we take a two month nap, essentially, uh, you know, our batteries will be recharged and I think we'll be ready to go. When you have the option to be online, it lets you just kind of become disengaged and mm-hmm. kind of fall into bad habits because you said, you know, students came back to campus, but they slowly stopped being there in person and just went for the hybrid option. right? And like just slowly started receding into the background. So it's just it's not a good learning environment. Well, I mean, let's be very clear. Students wanted to be on campus. Right. But they wanted to they wanted to go to parties and lick each other. They didn't want to come to class. Right. I mean, like I'm sorry. By the way, like I'm sorry, back no up for a sec. Sh- okay. No shade, right? When I was 20, that's what I wanted to do. Also, you know, that's fine. Like many a story can be told of me and undergrad. Uh, you know, going to parties. That's that's that was what undergrad was. That's fine. Um but that's what they wanted to do, you know, at the beginning of the academic year when we kept hearing like, but the students want to be back. I'm like, but OK, that's fine. What do they want to be back for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I have people, uh, people ask me sometimes, they say, you know, what do you think? Like, obviously, this is different from K through 12, but they'll say, well, what do you think? Like, is it possible to do to do online learning? And my response is that I think everybody loses a little bit with online learning. So I don't mm-hmm. think anybody gets the full uh, experience and, and gets the 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 full extent of what they should be getting with online learning. But um, I think the kids who are at the top lose a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think the kids who are at the bottom fall off a cliff. Totally agree. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And by the way, the kids who are at the top still have the potential to, to lose a lot. For sure. I mean, the, the, the problem is the potential to really fall behind is, is just right there. And it doesn't take a lot to fall behind. And um, and I just know that that when you are face to face, you in, in a classroom where, you know, we're very lucky that 
our biggest classes are what, like 42, something like that. So if someone doesn't get something, you can kind of see it on their faces, even if they're sitting in the back row with their baseball cap pulled down pretty low, like you can kind of see, you know, they think they're invisible (laughs) and, you know, they're very far away. It's like they're in Europe, you know, they're very small, Um, but you could still kind of see, like, you don't get what I'm saying. And you can readjust, you could pivot, you could say things in a different way and you can ask like, does that make sense? And they'll nod or they'll go, ah. and on and when you're on Zoom, it's uh, it's much harder to do that. Even if they have their cameras on, it's much harder to do that. And so, um, the yeah, I, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a good and a good and glorious thing when we are back looking at at all of people's faces. <laughs> you know, not just like the not just the not just the eyes. Yeah, it's gonna be weird. I mean, I've been in my house for. At least a year. I mean, I haven't been into the office. I haven't dealt with colleagues face to face. Well, you haven't been missing all that much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. I've seen us. Yeah, I always, crew. I always joke with uh, my my colleague Allison Carey. Uh, she's right across the hall from me, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, I can read you like a book. She's like, What do you mean? I said, I said, you know, I can tell when you are when you're at my office door and when you need a break from work or when you just, you need to vent or whatever, you're super energetic. And then I can tell when the clock times out because she starts backing away from my office and her, her <laughs> answers start getting more clipped. <laughs> I say, you're, you're ready to go now, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll stop talking. She is so Goodbye. great. I love Allison. <laughs> I love her so much. She is, by the way, she is, you know, I'm so filled with hyperbole and um, no small amount of BS a lot of the time, but I am not filled with BS right now when I say that Alison Carey is an award winning scholar. Oh, she's great. Uh, and professor. She is incredible. She just won her newest book, won yet another award um, from the American Sociological Association. So, way to go, Alison Carey. Uh, big, big, big fan. Long time, long time fan. Many time. Call her and text her, which is funny because she doesn't really answer her calls or her texts. So it's. Uh... Well, it's it's funny because I've had to deal with, again, with my colleagues over Zoom and over the telephone. And when I've interacted with her over like Zoom and over the telephone during the pandemic and when she has the same kind of cues, I'm like, you're backing out of my office right now. Aren't you? <laughs> She's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'll let you go. <laughs> Now, here's here's like the great thing about academics, right? We are we are a weird, we are a weird bucket of nuts. What? what, right? what? Yeah, I know. I know. It's hard to imagine. Like, we're all so socially acceptable. Um, a bunch of years ago, our, our good friend Stephanie Gerard and I took my daughters to go see Maleficent in the in the movie theater. And this was Angelina Jolie in like the backstory of Sleeping Beauty. And, and so we picked, we picked a day and it was like a Saturday and the girls were younger and it was the first gorgeous and I mean, beautiful spring day that hit. Right. And so anybody who was smart would have been like outside and like running and jumping and spelunking and canoeing and kayaking and and hiking and doing what outdoorsy people do. Right. And, and I, I mean, like, you know, I'm Jewish. I don't like the outside. Uh, the outdoors will kill you. You can ask Kara Laskowski, president of our union. That is my motto is the outdoors, the outdoors will, will kill, kill you. you. 
Yeah, they will. They they 100% will. You got to look um, up look up the Saturday Night Live sketch of uh, YOLO, You Only Live Once. Oh, my God. The Long Island guys. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. I have that on a, You can get a tooth infection. Just pull all your teeth out. Pull all your teeth out. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bury all your gold in your back, in, in your backyard like a schnauzer. Um, that is my, there is no such thing as too much Purell. That is my song. I am telling you, right? <laughs> it's, uh, Yeah. Do not go outside. The outdoors will kill you. So we we go to instead of being instead of being out, instead of being outside because it's the prettiest day in the entire world. We take the girls to go see Maleficent. And so we we get there. We get the popcorn. We sit down. And when the lights turn on, we realize there's like probably a total of 40 people in the entire movie theater the vast majority of whom are ship professors and their kids. <laughs> and what I realized was like, all of us have just been, we were raised like in libraries all the time, you know, like doing research at our carols in graduate school. And so if we go outside in the sun, it's like, Oh, it's so bright out here. Like we don't like the outdoors. So it really wasn't a religion thing. It's more like a profession. Uh, you know, like, well, well, I don't know outside we're fine inside. We don't like outside. Academics are weird. We really are strange. Yeah. I was... We're going to get so much blowback from all of our <laughs> colleagues who are like outside spelunking. Hey, we just showered praise on, on Allison Carey, but... That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Like, um, I always tell this joke in my class. It's not a very good joke, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. None of my jokes are Standards good. Standards are low. It's fine. But you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, it's funny that I had a... Um, speaking of telling the same joke over and over again, I'll hear from my students who have me more than once. Like, you know, you say the same jokes over and over and over again. Like, don't take me twice. All right. (laughs) The first time, the first time is it. I'm giving you everything I got. You're like, buddy, this is a stump speech, man. Okay. You are on, this is a campaign. Okay. You're going to hear me over and over again. You know how long it takes to to develop new material? Come on, you do it. Yeah. Come on. (laughs) But I tell this tough crowd. I tell this bad joke. Uh, you know, when we're talking about, I'm introducing what sociology is and the study of people and and how they they exist in society and, and you know and on and on, and and just get into like how weird sociologists are, mm-hmm. and how it's so odd that people that study people and study social interaction are like allergic to it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that's funny. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's very. You want to you want to hear it again? Just take me each semester. Yeah, I do. I'll take you. I'll you know what? We'll tape another podcast. You can tell it again. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) You know, today on the pod, uh, our very special guest is in fact an economist. That's right. Yeah, but she's my. I have to say, she's my favorite economist. Now you have a history with Alka. I do. I do have a history with Alka. Alka and I met at a. Uh, oh, hold on. Teaching. By the way, we're not talking about Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. Like, no, her we're name not. Her is name is Alka. Alka actually yes. Alka, A L K A, Alka Gandhi, and um, and she is uh, she is an economist, and she is at the University of Maryland. And we met at a teaching conference when I was, I believe, and uh, this is fairly technical. I believe I was 25 or 26 months pregnant when I met Alka. <laughs> like I was about to give Big birth baby. any, oh my God. I mean, I was pregnant with Caroline. Caroline like basically walked out and was like, Hey, I'm here. How you doing? Like she uh, could talk, she painful. could walk. Yeah, it was, it, she was, she was a <laughs> tough, tough kid. Um, 
I, I, in all seriousness, I gave birth two weeks later. Like she was, wow. and she was my second baby. So the fact that I actually gave birth on time was weird because second babies are always supposed to be like early. Um, and she was not, she was perfectly on time, which was the last time that Caroline was on time for anything. So let the record reflect <laughs> <But I'm>... that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, when Alka and I met, the first thing I did was I got to the conference, I dropped my bag and I, I looked on a map to find out where the hospital was, like just in case I went into labor. <laughs> so I was like, no, there's a decent chance I'm going to go into labor. Um, oh my gosh. And, uh, and I met Alka like the second minute that I was there. And, and I am a person who, you know, I will, I will go around and just meet a lot of people and then figure out who I like the best and then basically stick with them for <laughs> the rest of the time. everybody else. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Just also, I'm just, I'm very like clubby. I'm like, oh no, you're the cool person. Yes, 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 yes. Now we must mock everyone. Where's my click? And Where are my clicks yes, at? Yeah. We will. Yes. I will totally uh, mean girls the rest of this entire conference. Yep. Um, but I figured out I did. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I threw down hard with Alka. <laughs> like I didn't even have to meet anyone else. I was like, oh no, it is you, you and I forever. <laughs> um, and so I didn't need to meet anybody else. She was magnificent. And, uh, and we just remained friends. Like it was so cool. And I just remember her making me laugh so hard that she like would lean over and go, please don't go into labor. Please don't go into labor. And actually, like, there was a moment where I was like, I'm going into labor. <laughs> You've done it. <laughs> now I got to name my baby after you. <laughs> hey, by the way, you were uh, you were talking about Caroline earlier. Uh, and I, I wondered this on the last pod because you were doing some impressions of your kids. You were doing voices like Muppety voices. And I was just wondering, have any of your daughters or your husband heard the pod? And what do they think of your impressions? Um. So funny you should ask. Uh, so the the last the last pod when I was discussing when we were discussing and I was um, I was extolling the virtues of my family in great and dramatic detail <laughs> of um, Pete's surgery and his heroic conquering of pain um, and of course I believe I was ripping everybody a new one in the process of all of this I actually brought it upstairs and had everybody listen to it and <laughs> Maddie was so excited that I accurately described how horrible I was at the time that she said okay wait what is the what's the cover art? I have to send this to my friends. They don't believe me that this is what you sounded like. What's the time cue? Like she had all of the lingo down. She took a screenshot of it. She was like, it's like 23 minutes in. Right. And she just started texting it out to her friends like you have to hear this. This is really what she sounded like. <laughs> I just love that all of your all of your impressions of pretty much everybody are Muppety impressions. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm surrounded by Muppety people. I do like Muppety people. You know, Muppety people are the best people. <laughs> so they are. I'm a Muppety person. So your your background with economics. So you are friends with an economist. Uh, yeah, that's about it. That's about um, it. And I, yeah, I learned at a very early age. I'm not good at it. So okay. So just to recap, um, how early of an age were you exposed to economics? <laughs> Eighth grade. Um, okay. And uh, yes, so I, I believe in the course, however long this pod may run and may it run forever. 
may it run long. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we will. Un- hey, you can't. <laughs> no, remember, I'm unflushable. Remember that? I'm you're just going to keep on. on. Screen. Yep. I'm, you're never going to get rid of me. Come on. I have warned you, buddy. Like, you're going to have a new host and I'm still going to show up. You're going to be like, how the hell is she here? I, I have a microphone. I'm going to show up wherever. Oh, um, no. I stopped paying the bill on our hosting. <laughs> yeah, right. You wish. You got to leave your house. That's what I'm saying. That's why you got to leave your house. Yeah. Eventually, um, I will see you and you'll confront me about it. So. Gotta- oh, my gosh. It's going to be so much uglier than that. Confront you about it, please. Yeah. That involves like some sort of civility. I don't think I so. I want you guys to know that I'm doing this this pod as a hostage. Um, <laughs> You're gonna have, you're gonna have like these code words embedded in. <laughs> Please, somebody. <laughs> I am really enjoying myself. And if you play it backwards, it says like, "Please call help, <laughs> help me, help me." Blonde lady will not let me go. There are no windows here. I can't accurately describe where I am. But <laughs> all right. So eighth grade, you were exposed so to economics. Eighth grade, yeah. So if last time I um talked about how bad I am with languages. Now I get to talk about how bad I am with econ. Uh, Eighth grade, I went to this very, very small from from pre-kindergarten, like nursery school till eighth grade. It was this tiny little school outside of DC. And and it was this like free to be you and me. It was in the 70s. It was very groovy. We called all of our teachers by their first names. It was it was tiny. I'm, I don't really know that I learned all that much. <laughs> but, and and then like, at least at points, like the kids were really mean. Like, I don't know. It was it was a whole lot and a lot. But in eighth grade, Alice Rivlin, who was President Jimmy Carter's first chairperson of the Joint Economics Advisor something, Joint Chief Economic You're Advisor. You're off to a good start. Yeah, go ahead. I know, right? <laughs> she came to teach us about economics. Wow. And yeah, I know it was like the biggest thing in the, I mean. Those hippies think, had money. Yes. Okay. Let, <laughs> let the record reflect that, that hippies had money. It was a different time. I don't right? usually it, think it, of that as like the hippies had like fat wallets, but I right, Yeah, ahead. I guess they must have like, yeah, my, my parents did not. <laughs> um, and I'm not even sure. It was a different time, right? It was a very different time. Um, but there was the you know, the director of the president's economic council teaching us about economics. Now, I don't remember a thing about it. I do remember that she taught us economics with Oreo cookies. <laughs> and so I was in, I was like, if this is what econ is, I'm going to be an economist. If it's just about cookies, then that's it. That's going to be my life goal. And then it was made very clear that it was not about cookies. And I was like, well, then I'm out again because I think it involves math and I'm not great at that. And so it was a very long time until I took another econ class. And I mean, a very long time. Like it was, I did not take econ in high school and I had to take one in college and I saved it for my second semester, senior year of college. You and I took it past you, fail. Were, you were out the door. Oh man. And, and so now we have, we have moved from the the seventies, you know, free to be you and me into the Reagan eighties. And I went to college with every Gordon Gecko wannabe who just wanted to work on wall street. Like they just, they were like, in my class, I was a graduating senior 
and they were all freshmen who just were so eager to get A's. And I was taking this thing pass fail. Did they have their hair, so, their hair slicked back all in one direction? I swear to God, they were practically <laughs> wearing. I mean, no, they were the kind of guys that, you know, the guys were wearing like three different popped collars and, you know, and the girls were wearing like twin sets. Um, and Blue Horseshoe like loves Anacott Steel. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, and so the the professor would ask a question and 39 hands would just shoot up like as hard as they could. Like, oh, you know, like they all had the answer. And I would just sit and like avoid eye contact and look out the window and just not say anything. And he caught on to that with alarming alacrity. Like he, he, The professor just just sniffed me out within about seven minutes of the first day of class and therefore, you know, picked me every oh. single time so at on the first day i was like oh no this is going to be terrible and then i was like oh no this is going to be fun so i answered every single question he asked with the same answer <laughs> every single time which was carl marx the laugher no the laugher curve oh. <laughs> every single time i was like this is gonna be funny right it's the laugher curve <laughs> and so i was i thought i was a hoot and a holler the other 39 click kids did not think I was a hoot and a holler. And they were pissed that I got the first bite at the apple. Every question this dude was asking. <laughs> and so on the last day, I made it through by the skin of my teeth. It was just, it was like, I mean, just barely passing. And on the last day of class, he's going through what the exam was going to be. And then he, he stopped and he said, all right, we're good here. I just have one more question. And he stopped and he put his hands on his desk and he said, what Reagan era economic theory? <laughs> and then suddenly I was like, me, 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 me. And I got I got like bigger, like my chest got larger. My hair got straighter. Like suddenly I became Gordon Gecko. <laughs> and he asked, you know, posited the theory that the it was the whatever the hell the Lafferty curve was, you know? And so that sounds I, right. You know, that all, sounds right. Yeah. It, it just, yeah, whatever it was. <laughs> um, and all of the students like started to raise their hands and they realized what was happening there. And you could hear them all go uh, <sighs> at the same time. And I just raised my hand very slowly, like making eye contact with him the whole time. And he was like, yes. Allison and I was like the laugher curve and he was like well done and he, it was like two of us thought it was great 39 people wanted to kill me right then and there and they couldn't believe that they had to suffer through a semester with me in it they're all throwing I mean, their giant just, their giant cell phones at you that look yeah like i mean and th and that would have bruised <laughs> i mean because those things had to be carried around in like side pouches and stuff oh my gosh oh they hated me like poison and they swore if they ever saw me in manhattan they were gonna kick me with their shoes and their ties and they never saw me in manhattan that was the great news they all got married to each other and moved to greenwich and never saw me <laughs> guess who my graduation speaker was supposed to be Alan and then, Greenspan. nope, guess who my graduation speaker was instead? Okay, so this is a two-part quiz. <laughs> guess who my graduation speaker was supposed to be? Okay, so I said Alan Greenspan. That was wrong. It was not him. So I'm mm. trying to think. You graduated in 1912. I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. So who was big? Woodrow Wilson? I don't know. You're very, very funny. <laughs> my, in 1991, which was the worst economic. Storm and Norman? Uh, 
It was, <laughs> no. <laughs> ready for this? This is the truth. It's God's honest truth. Uh, booked and ready to come was Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. Wow. Yep, it is true. Because one of my classmates was Amber Healy, whose father, Dan Healy, was the sound guy for the Grateful Dead. And so some, you know, intrepid little St. Lawrence Larry, as we like to call ourselves, called the Grateful Dead and said, hey, Amber Healy's colleague, you know, here, uh, will Jerry Garcia be the, our graduation speaker? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then Amber called and was like, Uncle Jerry, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. it's like a two lane road going in, going out like this would be a disaster. Like, do not come. And he was like, sure. And so he didn't. <laughs> and so, and Whatever so you then, want, man. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't care. That's fine. Um, and it really, it honestly would have been a disaster because word would have spread and, you know, everybody and their campers would have come and it would have just been a whole lot of like naked dancing. It would have just been a lot, a lot for a very, very, very small town. Um, uh, so instead, the person who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he was our graduation speaker. Uh, just as good. And and uh, yeah, I don't remember a, a single word, but well, I, I, there were seven I, I did know what the laugher curve was. Yeah. And I also yeah. knew that I disagreed with that. <laughs> and that's my that's my entire history of economics. What's your history of economics? Can you beat that? My exposure to economics. Let's see. Uh, I took economics in college and we actually use a lot of work of economists in the study of poverty and economic you do. inequality. You're really good at it, actually. And you're good with numbers and stuff. You get this stuff. Yeah. Some of my favorite scholars, there's a great scholar, and I mentioned his name probably on every single pod. And so I'll name him again, name drop him again, Raj Chetty. Oh, you have such a crush on Raj Chetty. If Raj Chetty is ever listening, can you please just come on our pod just so that Lawrence can just stare at you longingly? <laughs> All right. Then without any further ado, we are joined today by Dr. Alka Gandhi, lecturer of economics at the University of Maryland. Alka, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to it be here. So good to have you here. Um, we will, uh, throughout this episode, we will go into stories of how we know each other. And it goes back uh, 15, 16 years, 16 yeah. years. I know it's so exciting. And yet we are so young. Um, but I want to begin. Our, our topic today is economics, which is very small and narrow. Uh, but I'm going to begin broadly, um, and I'm going to begin with a joke. So the joke is a short one, which is, question, what does an economist do? And the answer is, a lot in the short run, which amounts to nothing in the long run. <laughs> so the real question is, what is an economist? Yeah. So we'll start off uh, with the easy ones is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so an economist, as we were kind of just talking about before we started, was is really somebody who's interested in studying society, right? Social scientists are studying society, but really kind of at the systems, right? How like the economic systems work in terms of trade and the institution, the roles institutions have in it. Um, broadly, right? Not just government institutions, but all sorts of institutions that, um, you know, legal institutions all the, that create the the rules for the game, right? And then how people respond to incentives and how they make choices, 
right? So I always tell my students, we start off with economics is studying scarcity, studying choices in a world of scarcity, right? If we didn't have any, if our resources weren't scarce, you wouldn't have to make choices and we wouldn't need economics, right? Like if you're Paris Hilton, you don't have scarcity. She doesn't need to know economics, right? That sort of thing. She doesn't make choices, right? I don't think she does know economics, so I think that's a good thing. <laughs> right. So she's fine, right? She's exactly the person who doesn't need to know it. Um, <laughs> I mean, and ultimately, right, even Paris has a limit of 24 hours a day. So when I tell my students, because I assume you all do the same thing, is that this is the most important class that you're going to take in the university, yes. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Least. Least important. <laughs> But you are a sociologist. <laughs> That's so, right. You know? <laughs> Favorite jokes. I've heard them all. <laughs> so just deciding what you're going to do with every minute of the day, that's economics, making that choice, right? And then they choose oh. not to come to class. And, you know, maybe, maybe that was the right choice that day, right? Like, I don't know what their opportunity costs are, right? What they have to give up. So so kind of just teaching them like that. And then, and then you move on to specialties like monetary economics, labor, stuff like that. But really, ultimately, it's about making choice when you have scarce resources. What, how do you make do with the best with the resources you have? So this is when I talk about um, capitalism, just in like an intro, you know, US government class. I So now I will call it the invisible hand, not the hidden hand which is what I I actually remember it as being. Um, But the invisible hand, I always talk about Christmas gifts, like the hot Christmas toy of the year and how like one year it was the Furby and one year it was the, um, it was the the inappropriately, yeah, the inappropriately titled Tickle Me Elmo, (laughs) which really was just wrong on like five different levels. Do you remember Um, the the Norm MacDonald joke about that? No, what was it? It it wasn't as popular as the Tickle Me Frank Stallone. Yeah. (laughs) No, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to cut that. So that's that's the invisible hand. The invisible hand is like, okay, you want a Wii. And so you're not going to be able to find a Wii, you know, one year. Like, and if you do, it's going to be $500 on eBay. And then the next year, the place is going to be lousy with Wiis. And you're not going to be able to find a Tickle Me Frank Stallone. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time... Was it Nintendo that made the Wii, right? At the same time, Mm -hmm. Nintendo's making the Wii because Nintendo wants to make profit and, you know, do well for their bottom line. They're not making the Wii because they, I mean, to give joy to the world, right? They're doing it to make a profit. And I'm not buying a Wii because I'm really worried about Nintendo going out of business. I'm buying it because I want my kids to have fun, right? So nobody has to tell me to do it. It's my self-interest. So that's the invisible hand that's bringing us together. Got it. Right. That's cool. And now yeah. your wedding vows make so much sense. I know. And we're still that. together. Shockingly. And you're still together. <laughs> so the invisible hand of love has actually, that works right. too. It's right around our necks. <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's after your second year. <laughs> <laughs> and second kid. <laughs> all that's of it. it. Yeah, so all of joy. it combined. Yeah. Yeah, you go on year three, after kid number two, and it's pretty much that. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure we have scattershot questions here, but I know that um, if I had to guess, many people who are listening right now want to hear your take on the big fight for 15 that's going on in the country right now. Um, so what do you think about what should determine minimum wages? What's high? What's what's you know too low? What should it be the same everywhere? Give us your take on that as an economist. So I think the last thing you said is the most important is that 
this idea that one size fits all when it comes to minimum wage, I think is very unrealistic. Um, the, the classic supply and demand, you know, principles 101 story about minimum wage is that if you put the minimum wage too high and too high means over the equilibrium where supply and demand are equal to each other, then you're going to end up having too many people that want to work because the wage is so high and not enough people that want to hire them because the wage is so high. Right. So you end up with this excess supply of workers. If the minimum wage is placed below that equilibrium, it doesn't do anything. It just goes back to the equilibrium. Right. So and then the market clears where wherever it was going to. So that's a useless minimum wage to have. The only reason to have minimum wage is if it actually changes where the market goes. But if it changes where the market goes, you end up with these workers who would like to make this higher wage that can't find jobs. But on the upside, you have these workers who are making more. Right. The ones that did find the jobs, they're making more. And hopefully that's a livable wage. But what that wage is in Arkansas is not that wage here in DC where I am, you know? And mm-hmm. so you, we're constantly <laughs> joking about the, the tax policy. We're like, well, the good news is you're rich, right? You didn't know that, but you're rich. But the bad news is you're going to pay more in taxes, right? Because of the way they define rich, right? Or you're like, well, my house is a lot for Kansas, but it's kind of on par for where I am. So $15 here doesn't seem like so much, but $15 mandated in all of those rural areas, right? Where businesses, you know, it's just hard to, to get labor and much less pay it um, $15 an hour. It's, you know, it's, I think it's a different story. And so the story of unemployment caused by that, because that's what excess supply of labor is, is unemployment, is I'm a small business owner and now I have to pay my all my workers $15, well, guess what? I'm not going to hire someone to sweep up after and, you know, do all those little things because I'll just do it because it's not worth $15 and I'm legally not allowed to pay them five, right? Or 10 or what I think that's worth. So that's a job that's lost, right? A job that might be there if you pay them less. But again, as I said, on the upside, right? Economists always have, on the other hand, um, the people that get the jobs, right? As I said, have the higher wage, right? Which is a desirable thing for all the other reasons, right? Because that's also part of the system, right? They have more money, then they're going to buy more things and it's going to feed the system. Um, so that's that's hard, right? Are you asking the people that couldn't find the jobs at those wages or are you asking the people that found the jobs and are, are doing better because of it? I, I feel like economics, it sort of reaches into absolutely every facet of our lives in ways that we don't think about. So, okay, so agriculture, you know, is is one is one area. What mm-hmm. about um, what about the housing industry? So housing, funny that you should say that. Um, <laughs> my husband <laughs> is the chief economist for the Home Builders, the National Association of Home Builders. And so we talk a lot about housing at our house. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so a lot, I would say, if you want to think of everyday thing, it would be um, the mortgage deduction, right? So that you get a mortgage and you can have that deducted against your federal taxes. And that's something that was, Mm -hmm. that's really important for a lot of people to become homeowners. Right. Um, And then right now they're grappling with, you know, this exodus, I'll put it in quotes, air quotes, because uh, from the cities, right. During COVID times, people Ah. moving out and wanting to move to bigger places. And so there's a shortage of housing supply. And that is, 
coupled with lumber. The big story in housing is lumber right now. Yeah, right? I was going to say housing so, supply supply is now in, in shortage. Like there's no lumber. Right. Because it's it's the prices have at least doubled um, over COVID. I think, you know, I haven't checked in the last few hours, so maybe it's doubled again. But no, it's going up <laughs> very fast. Um, and so then there's all this argument of, well, what's causing that? Right. Is it uh, the lumber producers are purposely holding back supply because they're going to get this higher price? Or is it lack of capacity to actually be able to do this? to process the wood, you know, in the lumber mills, because it turns out there's not a lot of them, a lot of lumber producers. Um, and then, you know, getting it to the ultimate users of that lumber. It's been in our neighborhood, our little townhouse neighborhood, they were redoing the fences in everybody's backyards and they had to stop during COVID because lumber became so expensive and the contracts that they had they they were like, we can't, you know, we, we can't do it right now. And so it's at an everyday level, right? That's the kind of thing that even if you want to build a fence in your yard or if you go to Home Depot, right? Lumber prices have really increased so quickly that the big home suppliers that are doing like multi-family homes, like apartment buildings and things have more contracts, you know, stable long-term contracts. But mm. your, you know, your day laborers, when you go to Home Depot and you see the day laborers or, and those people that are just have a little company and they're remodeling, they're getting their lumber retail at Home Depot. And those prices oh, are... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so wait, did you get your effect. fence done? Or you, did you get your fence? We got it before the, yes. our poor restaurant neighborhood. Yeah. So. <laughs> but right. the fence construction is back on track. Don't you worry. Okay. Thank yeah. God. All right. Good. I, got a, I got a nice lesson in economics. We bought a house last year um, right when the market was really heating up. And, uh, you know, there was a price on the home and we were buying it from the builder. And... Uh, we said, you know, can you could you include um, you know a bump out on the driveway? Well, yeah, your house net was you know cost two eighty, now it costs two eighty five. Well, that's not included. Okay, uh, <laughs> could you include the fireplace? Your house now now costs two ninety one, right? Like there was no <laughs> negotiation. You know, it was like take it or leave it because they were selling like hotcakes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like on the menu, like food on the menu. Like I would like additional salt on my fries. It's like okay. That moves your fries up to $292,000 for my fries. If you come at closing time when they have all this uh, food to get rid of, that's one thing. But if you come during peak hours, forget it. You got to pay. Well, and something the new construction has to deal with are regulations that that existing housing stock that was built in the past doesn't have to be up to code. It's not like they're going to make you redo all those things before you can sell your old house. And so with the new construction, they do have to make sure, you know, that it's satisfying all of the regulations that old houses don't have to do that. So they have, so I'm sure they do have a menu of prices like, okay, that, what's that going to do? I'm going to have to get a new permit. I'm going to have to do this. And I'm going to have to build more green space for every square foot that it, so they have to think. Yeah, I think their this. answer was, if you want the house with all those things at that price, we'll sell it to those folks for more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that seems very unfair. Yeah, it's the market, you know. The seller's market. Yeah. We paid. It's, we paid what he asked us to pay. It's it's the invisible hand <laughs> around mm-hmm. your throat. Marriage, I'm your next book. I'm, that's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> but you're enjoying that bump out about five thousand dollars worth, aren't you? I am. I am. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> There's another shortage out there that I would love the economic takedown of, which is the car shortage. It feels like every story I hear, there's a shortage of new cars and used cars and now rental cars. And I'm figuring the next stories to drop will be 
bumper cars and also like water Match cars yeah. and, and also like the duck tours like the shortage also and i don't know where it's gonna the movie end. cars right it's, yeah, all of it it's just gonna everything is yeah exactly yeah what what uh why what is happening there so I don't know as much about that industry, but I, I, you know, probably what you've been hearing with all the chips, right? The the computer chips that go into a car, which is basically a oh. mobile computer these days. And so okay. it's kind of like the lumber of the car industry, right? That's what we need to build it. And <laughs> those I it was steel, but it's right. not anymore because yeah. cars are just computers. Right. And they're <laughs> all holograms. They don't even need steel now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so all those computer chips, which, you know, all the silicon and, you know, I don't know, everything else that goes into a computer chip and trying to get that with COVID and, you know, trade and, you know, the last four years have been a little rough on trade. Um, and then add to it, COVID just being able to move transitionally. And then, you know, a ship or two stuck in the Suez, right? It's just a mess trying to get all that stuff moved around. So <laughs> that um, ship being caught in the Suez was the best that just was it was I know it was difficult and it was hard I know it was wrong and it was the funniest picture in the entire world I just got Crazy. such joy from that I loved it and and all the like little tiny little people who were looking at it trying to figure out how to move it I was like just push really hard like, you're stuck in a snowbank. my brother-in-law works at a big construction firm in uh, New York and uh, I get a really interesting perspective from him, especially with the pandemic, where every time something like that happens, he just blasts out to the group thread how his life is a living hell because the <laughs> supply chain has just been disrupted. <laughs> so and I think that was a really sad but good example of the system, right? You actually, yeah. during all of COVID, mm -hmm. we've seen economics, right? We see what happens when the food factory workers don't go. And then we go to the grocery store and we're like, ah, and there's two people working at the grocery store and I can't buy the brand of waffles I want. And I have to wait three hours to check out anyway, right? We, I feel like we've seen the invisible hand, right? <laughs> And, this whole and, hand feels arbitrary. Like there, there would be days where, like, there would be no Pam, right. and that would, and that would be it. Like, just <laughs> Pam would be empty, and and I couldn't yeah. figure it out because the other aisle would be fine, you know, like right. not full but fine. And then two weeks later, when you'd go back again, it would be stocked full of Pam, but then you could not find tampons. And it's like, <laughs> what is happening here? I don't understand. The famous these tampon are not bubble of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was a tampon bubble. It felt very strange. It's not like, and some of the stuff you just couldn't see people using more of. <laughs> like, <laughs> just felt not right. Yeah. So, right. yes, I mean, I think yeah. that's exactly what it is, right? That, you know, there would be a burp in the supply chain. We all learned what a supply chain was. Right. That's exciting. And, yeah. You could, exactly. down, you could walk downstairs, Allie. There's a whole department below us in Grove. There, and I never knew what the hell it was. <laughs> yeah. the business, we're, we're at the top floor of the business school. Supply chain. I was like, I don't know. You know, like it just, it felt right to me. Hey, look, what, 14 years after your wedding, I thought it was the hidden hand. You know, right? like, come on. I don't ask questions. I just go, okay, it seems like the right thing. So sure. Supply chain. Allie has been propagating this idea that there's a really creepy name for an economic, <laughs> like a basic economic mechanism. Students have been going around talking about it. As far as I Show know. us on the doll where the hidden hand touched you. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't play that, Allie. Come on. <laughs> the students know nothing about economics. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
getting a little dark there. But <laughs> <laughs> I just think of Charlie Day and his uh, his uncle. But go ahead. No. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on on Utterly Moderate. Right. What's your next question yeah. there, Allie? <laughs> no, your turn. Go ahead. So, uh, I mean, there's no, you know, we didn't give you this ahead of time, so I'm not expecting you to have some robust analysis. But general thoughts on the the good that the Biden administration has done first 100 days in terms of economic policy, in terms of the return of or the advent of gigantic government, uh, and then the things that maybe you don't think he's done so well. I mean, it seems like Republicans have been talking about inflation for a long time. Um, you know, overheating the economy, all these different uh, bugaboos that some of some are real, right? Possibilities down the road. Which ones worry you the most? Yeah, I guess with inflation, the policymaking, and I'll tell you my bias is I am in favor of the Federal Reserve. I think they've done, I think they did a great job during the Great Recession. I, I, I think we were lucky to have Ben Bernanke in there at the time that we did. But I know that's really controversial and there's a whole subset of people who actually want to abolish the Federal Reserve. But given what I think that they've learned and been able to prove that they've learned in terms of using the policy levers that they have, I'm not as worried about inflation because I think that they know what to do to get rid of it should it really get out of control. So you have all these worries that we're going to go back to the 1970s. And the thing about the 1970s is that they were fixed with some of the policy standards that we have today. Um, it wasn't painless. <laughs> it wasn't good. But to worry about inflation in a time where you're worried about unemployment and poverty and starvation, you know, not, I mean, not starvation, but going hungry, that seems maybe a little off course in terms of, you know, yes, both of them are important, price stability and maximum employment, but sometimes one is more important to deal with at, at the time. So I'm not that worried about inflation. I think that it's a possibility once recovery actually starts. But that's why we have our policy tools and we pull back on those. And I think the famous last words in a book I read once called The Big Short were, we know how to fix these things now. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you actually break down what some of those policy tools are and explain them a little bit more in terms of what the, the Fed can do sure. in order to help? So the idea with the Federal Reserve, I, I'm, I'm an economic historian, so so I could give you the whole history of the Federal Reserve, but I think I'll refrain from that. <laughs> it has it has uh, for the U.S. It was really late in the game getting to having a central bank, which is what the Federal Reserve is, and notably, the Federal Reserve system is not called the Central Bank of the United States, right? Which is what the Bank of England is the Central Bank of England, the Bank of Japan is the Central Bank of Japan, right? It's pretty obvious what your central bank is, but ours isn't called that. And that's because they created the system that's a mix of private and public control on purpose, because the people who founded it were very, some were very worried about having money controlled by private interests, and some were very worried about money controlled by public interests, right? And so they created this hybrid system. So what the Federal Reserve can do, um, is control the money supply. That's pretty much they target the monetary aggregate. So the money supply, not just the physical dollars that are out there, but it's kind of the purchasing power. So we call that the monetary base. Um, when you deposit your money in your bank, that bank's going to loan out. We'll keep a fraction of it and loan out most of it. And then that creates new purchasing power for the person who got the loan. And so then I saw my purchasing power for my money in the bank, but now somebody else has more purchasing power. So all of that we call that the money multiplier system. And all of that is considered money. 
um, what people have the power to purchase off of and we consider that money. So the Fed isn't going to go and take your money away, but what they'll do is open market operations. And so when they do an open market sale, what they're doing is selling bonds, treasury bills, the, the federal debt, right? They're selling it to this set of banks that they deal with. And when they sell those that money to the, the bonds to those banks, they collect money for the sale and they take it out of circulation, right? So then the money supply is shrunk. And when the money supply shrinks, prices usually follow money supply. So that's how you whittle down inflation, right? And then the opposite happens if you do an open market purchase. You go out, the, the Fed goes out and purchases T-bills. And with that money that they pay them, that's new money that's entering circulation. So the money supply is increased. If we're worried about access to liquidity, credit crunches, all that stuff, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to get that money out. Right? That's the primary tool. Now there's more tools than that. And they deal in financial, like very um, complicated financial instruments that they also have some more powers on that they got during the Great Recession, permission from Congress to do these sorts of things, to find other ways to get money out, um, like banks that had all those subprime mortgages during the Great Recession, that mm -hmm. they can go and take those toxic assets off of there. So they had to get permission from Congress to be able to buy that because they're not usually allowed to buy like private um, assets, right? They can only deal with treasury bills because that's the government. Um, so that was a way to get liquidity to the banks who needed it and off, you know, get all this toxic stuff off of their balance sheets. Um, so that's, so that's kind of a newer way. And, you know, they don't do that as much now is really just focused at that time. Um, they also control what we call the discount rate, which is the fed makes loans to individual banks, um, through what's called a discount window, which is, I was telling students, it's not a real window, right? At one time it probably was, but, um, they go and borrow from them and the interest rate they pay them is called the discount rate. And so the Fed's the lender in that case, and it can adjust that discount rate. So if they want to encourage banks to borrow more to get pump more liquidity into the economy, they can lower that discount rate. And if they want to discourage banks from doing that, they can increase that discount rate. And then the last big one is the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate that banks loan to other banks. Um, again, they can't explicitly control that because that's a market price, like supply and demand controls that. But the Fed can pump money in. And when there's more money, you're going to change the price. Right? So if there's a higher supply of those funds or a lower supply of those funds, it'll alter the, the price. Um, the, the interest rate in that case is the price of those loans. So, And that all happens pretty instantaneous because when the Fed says they're going to do it, everybody knows the Fed's going to do it and the interest rate changes immediately. Um, so for instance, I, you know, starting at... at Kind of with Lehman Brothers collapsing, then the interest rate, the federal funds rate was targeted at zero and pretty much stayed there for 10 years, um, something like that. And uh, and that was the idea that we want to make money cheap. Come borrow it. Everybody come borrow it, right? Because we're worried about aggregate demand, demand by everybody for everything. So we want to get pump money into the economy. Right? So those are the main tools. Allie doesn't know that I know this, um, but... She recently tried to get me classified as a toxic asset and offload me. <laughs> Nobody would take you? No. no. <laughs> Too toxic. <laughs> Weirdly, this hidden hand came in. <laughs> hey, Alka, um, how much do you worry about income inequality? So um, a few years back, there were some studies that showed an association between income inequality and mobility. And the question is, of course, 
which way does the arrow go causally in that relationship? Is there a third, you know, factor or a variety of factors, et cetera? But there's a pretty clear and strong relationship. But then I think even most impressively, and I'm sure you're familiar with the big Ross Chetty paper mm. and Nathaniel Hendren and all those folks, um, where they found that that same Gatsby curve was operating across the U.S. So really unequal com- communities had had less mobility. How much do you worry about that, number one? And number two, what are your favorite levers for addressing it? Yeah, the, all the work that Chetty's doing is just amazing. Just the data that he's compiling and the the, oh, the eyes he's opening with, with what he's, the stories he's, he's telling. Um, I think that really is the American dream, right? I mean, we talk about a house and, you know, cars or whatever, but it's really that economic mobility, yeah. right? If you're born into a certain quintile of income, can you move yourself up? Um, and it turns out it's it's very difficult to do, right? Very few people do it. And those are the stories that we all glom onto. But in the same vein, you also don't really move down too much. So it turns out that middle class people are very good at keeping their kids in the middle class sort of thing, right? Particularly the upper middle class and then the upper classes of, of income. Um, so I think that it is a real problem. And I think that it's interesting the kinds of projects that people come up with to combat it. Because one of the biggest things that I think study after study has borne out is that education, right, is kind of the key, right? Of course, we all buy into that because we're all college professors. So yeah, go us. <laughs> but, um, but that's generally what you see, right? For those few people that are able for those, I mean, not few people, but few percentages of people that are able to move up the economic ladder, it generally, not always, but generally is true that that's what has pulled you up or at least played a big role. So I think policy to deal with education is really important. Um, but I, you know, after this last year and just seeing you know, we have a large group of immigrants that live where we live and you just, you see the disparity between just, yeah, do you have a computer? Do you have internet access? And do you have a parent that has to has to go out and work, right? Because they do things like cleaning or working at the grocery store, right? And so when you leave, is your six-year-old really going to get online and make sure that he's going to first grade, right? Or is grandma, who has no idea about computers, going to make sure, like fix all his problems and his internet problems and do all his different things for him? And, um, and I think that this year of lost education for so many is just going to exacerbate that inequality problem. So I do think it's something really in itself, right? Not even the ouch, the the effect that it might have on economic growth, right? Not even the effect that it might have on any other institutions in itself, right? For those people, I think that's the worrisome thing, right? Just how do you make, how do you help these people? And I, I, I don't know, right? I, it's interesting when you have these uh, universal basic income, I'm sure you've heard of right? people trying to do Yang's, right? Let's just send everybody money. And or as an Rom- economist- the, the Romney child allowance uh, proposal. Yeah. And then as an economist, I'm actually sympathetic to that because give people money if they need money and then they'll choose where to spend it. And hopefully they'll spend it, you know, in a way that will make them better in the future. But it doesn't always happen, right? And kids don't always have parents who are making choices in the kids' interest, right? Um, and may not even make choices in their best interest if they have addiction issues or whatever, right? Then your choices aren't rational. So I think that, I mean, I, it's probably 
maybe just self-serving, but I feel like education, um, but finding a way to actually provide education um, in a useful way. I, I, um, I used to work with Jill Biden, right? Plug for me at uh, Northern Virginia Community College. And she, um, she's our greatest advocate for community colleges. I mean, I, they're so dismissed, I think in our society, they're kind of the butt of a lot of jokes, but I don't, think everybody necessarily needs a four-year education. Um, I don't think everybody wants a four-year education. And there's a lot of value that you can get from just learning that trade or, you know, getting your your associates in something, getting being a nurse's assistant, right? All these programs that we did. And the community colleges, having worked there for six years, man, they've got a lot that they're trying to do with not so much. And on top of that, there's stigma. Because now that I'm at Maryland, I go in the first day and I tell them who I am and I tell them, oh, you know, I was teaching here and I used to teach it at Nova. And then now I'll have students come up to me and be like, oh, I went to community college and I just transferred and like literally whispering. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, why are we whispering? Or should we not talk about this? And that's how Great they success feel. success story. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's how they feel. And, uh, you know, like, like we got to do better. So when you look at overall... American mobility, intergenerational mobility, right? Um, you're right that there's a stickiness at the bottom and the top and much more pronounced than say Denmark or Canada or a variety of other countries. But if you separate African-Americans and whites, you see that whites actually have pretty normal mobility and African-American mobility is just atrocious. In fact, an African-American child born into the middle class, their most likely outcome is to fall out of the middle class. So my question to you would be in terms of policy, there's a new policy idea. I don't know if it's been implemented elsewhere. The way that I've read about it makes it sound like it's a new idea. It's sort of a thought experiment. Um, what do you think of the idea of things like baby bonds that could be sort of graduated, right? So you put an investment money in an investment account for poor kids. That's bigger than the money. Everybody gets it, but bigger than the money you put for, you know, rich kids and the magic of compound interest over time. Mm -hmm. Um and it, it, it attacks the racial inequality gap because there's, you know, income and wealth are racialized in the U.S. And I've, I've seen estimates that at the low end, maybe 70 percent at the high end, 80 percent of the racial inequality gap could be eliminated. What do you think about that kind of idea? So so I didn't know that about if you separate it out by races, about income inequalities. That's really interesting. Um, I, I feel pretty, pretty confident, but you're an economist and I'm not. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, I just don't work in the area that much, but I think that's really interesting. Um I ran that by Bosch Mazumder at the Federal Reserve in Chicago, and he said, "Yes, that's true." So I think yeah. it's true. Yeah, and and it you know it jives with all what we right. you know anecdotally yeah. know anyway. Um, so here's my concern: hearing that we know that by class, by income class, and then we, as you just suggested, that's also predominantly falls along racial lines that they are un underbanked, right? They are either unbanked or underbanked, meaning they don't have access to bank or they don't take access to banking for whatever reason, their own, you know, prejudice against it or just their own, you know, they don't have a role model that they've seen have a bank account and deal with a bank account. And so this is why um, poorer people ha are subject to, you know, using payday loans and all that stuff, right? Paycheck and having a huge chunk of their paycheck taken out just so they can cash their paycheck. So where are these baby bonds going to be? How are you going to introduce this access to the financial sector that they're going to need to go and actually access it when they're older? Um, and are we sure that 
they are going to be able to get it right that they are who they say they are and they're going to be have access like how is it going to follow them from baby through maybe a rough childhood to it's you know when it when it matures like whenever you have access to it so if you said so that's that, what i would if you said if you set that issue aside which is a, a clearly an issue right um but the the fundamental idea economically doesn't make any sense to you it does make sense. I mean, it, it's certainly cheaper to give somebody a seed uh, when they're born than have to pay them the full amount when, you know, they're, they reach adulthood. Um, I think there is still going to be an issue on how do we pay for that, right? But I think I saw it was uh, 2% of the federal budget. So it's a lot, but, you know. But but if it works, right, um, yeah. you know, and certainly the, the key is not just getting them the money but teaching them how to do these things in life, right? That they may not have had role models for them, that other people yeah. have the benefit of seeing their parents budget, you know, just making a budget and having my Transferring kids just, directly into a home ownership or yeah, exactly. Or, right. Having seen what the state of Virginia, no offense, Virginia, I love you, but you know, the financial literacy program for fifth graders, I was a little, a little surprised by <laughs> That was, you know, sorry, COVID. I had I listened to all those in virtual classes. So. I'm from Virginia, so I feel your pain. We had okay. a, a Lee Jackson King Day till 2000, so I feel your pain. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I think that our kids getting that taught, and even if you do get it taught in school in fifth grade, is that going to stick with you? Let's say this matures when you're 18, and now you have a big wad of money that you're going to put some aside, and you're going to, you know, are you going to do that? And so. Um, I know I keep coming back to it, but I think that teaching people how to to use that is also important. So in terms of your fundamental question, take all logistics out of it and let's say everything works beautifully and they get the money and they have access to it. Is that going to give them that leg up to get money? It certainly has to do for some. Some are going to figure it out, right? It's got to cut into the gap in some way, right? Right. Yeah. So I think that it has to cut into the gap. Enough. I wonder how much, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, yeah, the 70, 80%, I'm sure, is like an ideal scenario. Right. And I, I yeah, I, I question the logistics, especially if it's something that the federal government's doing, then to attach to every baby born. I also question the logistics of like um, how you calculate. So, for instance, I was thinking about this this morning, independent of this interview, because um, I talk about these things in my classes, you know, what policies could we uh, implement? And, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, if you looked at my total household income, it was terrible, right? <laughs> um, and we had a kid. And so, and immediately after exiting my graduate program, I was making a lot more money, right? So, um, my kid would reap this really unjust benefit, at least in terms of the, the function of that program. I just wonder, like, would you do it the first five years of your income or, you know, what would that be? Yeah, that's interesting. And it also would time fertility choices differently. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because I certainly didn't want to have a kid in grad school, but maybe I should have. Right. If, if this, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and then which case it's going to people that, as you suggest, aren't really the ones that it's targeting. Right. Who's playing a game, manipulating their income or, you know, picking the income that's lower. It seems urgent. It seems like Republicans and Democrats are ready to act in some way on this problem. And so I'm just I'm really interested in what how it's going to take shape. Yeah. In terms of economic policy, could you address? I think we, I think we all pretty much know the internecine fights in the Democratic Party about 
how liberal do, you know, is the Democratic Party going to go in terms of economic policy? So I think we could kind of leave them alone um, just because it's, you know, we got it right. You know, we got it. Even if I could understand it, you know, then I think we kind of can understand it. So in terms of the Republican economic policy, could you explain maybe in the before times, like my husband always says that I play by 90s rules, you know, where things like made sense and he was a Republican man and it was like, OK, this is what we stood for. And then like now and he's just you parted confused. your hair on the side. It was yeah. just it was a normal yeah. it was just a normal time. And it was, yeah. you know, buy low, sell high. And now it just seems <laughs> odd. Um, so what is going on now in terms of, you know, capital R, capital P, Republican Party economic policy? Man, that is a good one. And I would start with Tea Party. What? Okay. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> because where I like, <laughs> like you, like you said, in the before times, when you kind of, you know, knew that this group was for this and this group was for this. And, and interestingly enough, I think, and, and Lawrence kind of mentioned this, we all observe the same problems in society. It's the weight we place on them, how we plan to attack them. But it's not like, I mean, not for everybody, but for at least the, the middle, uh, let's say, we call that the interquartile range from the from the 25th percentile to the 70th percentile. I think all of those people um, kind of identify the problems, you know, see what's going on, maybe have a different idea of how you attack it. So in the times when I thought I knew what conservatism was, it was for smaller federal governments, you know, states deciding more about policies for states, um, less spending, more trickle down sort of thing, right? Once you get the Tea Party in there, like, okay, we're so anti-deficit. Okay, you know, I get that. But then you have 2016 and it's, we're still Tea Party, but now we're super fine with, you know, we didn't like when Obama was spending money, but we're, we appear to be fine with Trump spending money because I don't know that that gets an out. It's a special category of the budget. I don't know what it is. Um, and so, but then they doubled down, right? Jim Jordan, they doubled down on that. And then the deficit, that was your main thing. That's why, that's why you were giving John Boehner headaches, right? But now you don't seem to care. So I don't know. And I think with this whole Liz Cheney getting kicked out, I don't know what, I know what I think conservatism is. And I don't know what Trumpers think it is. I do get some of the Trump stuff because I do get that I don't want Rachel Maddow to lecture to me when, from her position of, you know, being making a lot of money and living the high life, you know, from my perspective, right, for as just a normal person. And then she's going to come on TV and, and lecture me and make me feel stupid or, you know, whatever. I, I get that kind of like part of the Trump thing where it's just, you know, we are productive and we have jobs and maybe we don't have high fluting jobs, but they're good. And we take care of our families and we don't need you lecturing to us that we're anti-intellectual because that's rude and it makes us feel bad. And, oh, and then here's this guy who actually becomes president and he says everything that we think about you too. So great. But so I can kind of get that on like just the feeling side but the policies, like, and that's what I was talking about with consistency. I'm like, I don't, like, the conservatives were anti-trade. Okay, that's new. <laughs> um, we're pro-tariffs. I thought you didn't like taxes. No, we like those taxes. Oh, 
okay, that's new. Um, deficit spending, that's okay, okay. I don't know. I mean, no, I, I don't have an answer just for because you. you're an old school Republican and you don't see owning the libs as a policy, you know. <laughs> right. Throw whatever money at it you can. <laughs> all of it's justified. <laughs> and, you know, you look at Kinsinger and Ben Sass, you know, I'm from Kansas. He's in Nebraska. Ben Sass, I, I feel like sing it. You 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 are speaking my language. Um, the night of the insurrection, my poor 12 year old twins had to come and listen to Ben Sass's like, I recorded this. Get up here. We don't want to listen to this. <laughs> I'm like there was an insurrection at the Capitol. This cannot happen. We're, you know, ultimately there's one thing that you're talking about Reagan conservatives and an insurrection. Never, never. And now I don't know. I don't know. Question for you. All right. So I just want, I just want your, obviously you're an economist, so it's going to be filtering the way that you perceived all this, but I just want Alka sitting at home on the couch in her office this past year. And you see a few things happening. What immediately pops into your head? Uh, two events, the rise of cryptocurrency and then the GameStop affair. So let's, <laughs> let's do them separately. Oh, those are good. Because I know you, I looked at your CV, you have a lot of work in the history of finance. So <laughs> I'd love to hear what you have to say. So cryptocurrency, I don't know if you, if you saw the Elon Musk Saturday Night Live, right, that just aired, but uh, he is on the weekend update and Michael Che asks him, so what's Dogecoin? Right. And so he says, well, it's a blockchain currency. Blah, blah, blah. Right. So what's Dogecoin? And they just keep asking him repeatedly. And then Colin Joe says, well, you know, I have a question too. And he says something. And he goes, so what's Dogecoin? And it just doesn't matter. Right? And I feel like I'm asking that question as opposed to the one answering it because cryptocurrencies are, you know, as I said, I'm a fan of the Fed and the Fed is, you know, no, the people who like the gold standard are no fan of the Fed um, because they want to have gold, right? They want to have rocks backing their currency, um, which is great when you have enough rocks. When you start losing your rocks, then you don't, you have to lose your currency and prices fall and things collapse. And um, well, despite all the rocks that you got, you can still be Alka from the block. Right. So anyway, <laughs> you know it. Wow. <laughs> Did you just throw that in there because there's that rumor that J-Lo is back with Ben Affleck? Yes. I, I was thinking tying everything in. All, wow. All that was it. That was yeah. you were waiting. You were just waiting. That was amazing. Nice Sorry, good, I'll, I'll get from the block. Go ahead. Okay. Well, and also people can't see me, but I look very similar to J-Lo. So that's <laughs> You're probably basically. Why. Well, that's why I wanted to be friends with you in yeah. the first place. I, I mean, I just because I figured you had a white Bentley and then. I would look what? good in it. Yeah. yeah. Alka yeah. from the blockchain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, it's beyond me. I, I'm going to put it in that category of things like um, the non-fungible tokens, right? You know, have you heard of the non-fungible tokens? Oh, man, those tokens? are so, <laughs> those are not as confusing as cryptocurrency. Yes, I've listened to true. like seven Planet Monies <laughs> about cryptocurrency and I take notes. Like I'm sitting there, I'm like, all right, this is the time I'm going to get it. And at the end, I'm like, nope, didn't get it this time either. Right. It's so mind boggling. I just don't get it. I really don't. Right. So I, I mean, with, with hackers and things like that, to me, I'm just like any currency that's fundamentally coming from some sort of cyber area, it seems like it's open but i mean they've been very secure and that's great they 
they're prone to a lot of bubbles, it seems like. But, you know, if people like that, you know, go big or go home sort of thing, like the GameStop people. Um, and maybe that's the future, right? I think there's there's this stream, you know, all of the insurrection of people are like, just we don't care about you, uh, the, the institutions, right? The government can't control us and we're going to create our own currency. You have monopoly on currency and now we're doing it because we're cyber people and we can do everything and including that and it's going to be better. But it only has value still because people demand it, right? The same reason our dollar, physical dollar bill has value is because I believe it has value and I will take it for goods and services that I render and you will take it for goods that I buy from you. And because we believe in it, it works. So it's the same thing with the cryptocurrency, right? If people stop demanding it and stop buying it, it's not like it's going to keep accruing value, right? Because if nobody wants it and and nobody accepts it for goods and services, apparently you can use Dogecoin to go to Mars now. So that's nice. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Elon Musk is going to take it. So, I mean, I, I am going to stick with good old currency issued by those stodgy governments for, for now. But but maybe that's the wave of the future. I mean, I'm always behind. I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I, I, try, I have a cell phone. So that's fancy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right, exactly. So in terms of cryptocurrency, I'm probably not the person to say, oh, what is it? You have a cell phone. Great. So what do you um, think of the whole Robin Hood GameStop thing? That was interesting. And I, so I'm also, might surprise you to find out, do no social media, right? Mostly just because I don't have time. I never got it. And then now I, I'm on LinkedIn because I had students, ex-students that started, you know, it's like, can you get on there so we can keep in touch? And I'm like, okay. And so then I'll, I'll get these notices that are like, oh, you have five people who, who've been looking into you or however they say it. And I'm like, What? Why? What are they talking about? <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> and my husband's like, no, that, that's how it works. It's social media. I'm like, they're stalking now. So, um, so that in that vein of social media, I think that's what the GameStop thing was, right? It was all the social media. We're going to stick it to the man. We're going to use our, our crowds that we can all access you know, instantly. And we're going to save this thing that inherently has no value. I mean... I have GameStop gift cards that my got that kids got for their birthday a few years ago. I'm like, we got to use this thing, man. Because we're not gonna be able to buy anything. And even then, when you go in there, like, how many physical DVDs or CDs or whatever they call games, right? Do they use? Right? They just download them and they stream them. And so it's sad that something that people value, like this games, you know, video game store is going to collapse, but it's also sad that Blockbuster owns, oh, there's only one around, right? Because it's too nice. bad this didn't all exist when Errols was around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Errols. a deep pie. <laughs> I was a member of Errols. Wow. That's regional and very, very old. <laughs> so you could have saved it had that's you right. had access to social media and people with enough money and belief in you to prop up something that inherently doesn't have any more value because it's been made obsolete by technology, right? And I'm sorry to GameStop people. Like, and, you know, I, and I have friends whose kids are in college and they're like, yeah, we're sticking it to the man. <laughs> you are and there. There are the fat cats on Wall Street. Those, he- But guess what? The hedge fund people are still rich. They're okay. They're <laughs> yeah. going to be okay even without GameStop. <laughs> but I'm sure... The I only made $10 million today instead of, <laughs> you know, 10.5. Right. You know- and even if you lost $10 million, 
your hedge fund buddies bailed you out, so you're okay, <laughs> right? But the kid, the college kids that were doing it, they didn't make $10 million. <laughs> and I'm not sure the GameStop is even saved. Right. right. I mean, because you Ultimately. can't, it's, yeah, it's not, this isn't going to be lasting. And and there's a, a new body of political science that actually looks into chaos voters, the voters who are, and there's a, a bizarrely large number of voters who just want to burn the whole system down, right? They don't care who it is. They don't care what party they're from. They just want the entire thing to collapse. And, um, and I think that, that that ties in with this, right? Mm-hmm. The idea and, you know, the idea that, that the elites, whoever those elites are, whether it's elites in government, in the economy, in, you know, the media, whatever, they're too big and we're just going to destroy them. And we're going to watch it all burn because the, the delta is too big between where they are and where we are. And if that is your, you know, underlying foundation, if that is your principle, um, then it's it, then it doesn't even matter if it's GameStop. They're just going to hitch their wagon to something. Right. And it's right. not going to be productive. It's going to be really, really destructive to a system that's propping up a whole lot of other folks. At least it seems to me. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but that seems to be. No, I think so. I think it is that chaos. And we're like, we just want to, you know, we just want to stick our finger in the pot and start and see what happens just to see. Right. <laughs> not an ultimate goal, but just to see people who empirically have done well. Let's see them lose because that's satisfying. And, you know, okay, I guess. Even if everybody loses because of it, it's still, you know, I I don't know. What does the economic data show? Like, how are we doing as a country? Yeah. So I think um, if you look as a country, obviously the US is the richest country, even though it doesn't have the most popular rate. So even if you look at total gross domestic product, total income, it's higher than China, even not adjusted for population, right? Like make a lot of money, right? And so then even per capita, obviously. Now that's, it's it's closing in and the EU as a whole also is closing in, but yeah, so as an aggregate, but to to Lawrence's point about income inequality, right? It's obviously not shared equally by everybody. It's grossly skewed. Even then, right? To put it in a historical perspective, we'll go back to history. Um, it's always an interesting thought experiment to be like, do you want to be uh, one of the richest people in 1870 mm. or one of the middle class people in 1970? Right. So you don't have electricity. You don't have indoor plumbing. Um, you don't have heating. You don't have air conditioning. Right. You, you know, but you might have a servant back then if you're rich in 1870 who can bring all your water in and into your chamber pots and things. But, you know, do you like telephones? Do you like TV? Do you like flying somewhere? And, you know, right? So, yes, right? Even the poorest among us are better off than our historical middle class, right? On average, right? Even when you look at that lowest quintile of people, the things they have access to, in most cases, um, you know, a roof over their heads, access to electricity, indoor plumbing, right? All these basic things that I'm super big fan of, right? So I would not want to go back to 1850. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that in that sense, we are better than we've ever been. Uh, but but you make an interesting point because now the Joneses aren't literally your neighbors. It's 
a billion people that you're connected with on Facebook. And you're like, I have to do better than all of those Joneses. Holy crap. Right. I could fake it for my neighbors, but it seems like I might actually have to be doing better. Right. And that's, that's hard to keep up with. That's why I can't do social media. I'm barely keeping it together. So I'm certainly don't have time to also post that I actually am keeping it together. So then I just, you know, I can't do it. Um, yeah. It's, it's too hard. Okay. So last question, Alka, what is the one thing that you wish Americans knew about economics that we just get wrong all the time besides the hidden hand, invisible hand analogy, which I'm expecting that book, the the hidden hand hand of economics by Alison marriage around your neck. (laughs) Um. So the one big concept, and I know this because, again, I have twins. And so it's great when you're both economists and you have twins because there's all this like teaching your kids gains from trade. And you're like, you like the green Lucky Charms and he likes the orange one. Let's think about how we can make an equitable trade. Right. So it's awesome. Um, But the big thing that I was like, if I could teach these kids this, right, this will be a lesson for their whole life. So that's why I would say for everybody is the concept of opportunity cost, which is when you use your resources to do one thing, you no longer have your resources to do the next best thing you would have done. And every choice you make has an opportunity cost. And when the price in terms of resources changes, you change your decision, right? Because then the next, you always want the next best thing to cost, you know, be, be worth less to you, right? Otherwise you're doing the wrong thing, right? You're not making a rational decision. Um, and sometimes you make mistakes, right? Everybody makes mistakes because you make a choice and you kind of overestimated its value too, right? But being rational doesn't mean you never make those mistakes. It means you don't do it again, right? You learn. You say, oh, that wasn't as valuable buying that candy bar because I actually did like this gum better. So next time I'm going to buy the gum, right? Because that's worth more to me. So I feel like that fundamental idea of opportunity cost with everything, with your money, with your time, um, all those decisions are is the important thing to take away. And that everybody else has an opportunity cost and you don't necessarily know what that is. So when you say, what a crazy thing you just did. Like, no, I waited in line for Justin Bieber tickets because I love him the most of everybody in the world. Like, okay, well, I wouldn't spend 12 hours like that. But that's based on your preferences and your opportunity cost was different from mine. And so I'm okay with your choice, right? Because it's not, me, right? We all have different tastes and preferences. We all make decisions based on different opportunity costs. And I tell my students, I don't take attendance because I don't know what your opportunity cost is. I'll tell you, students that come to class do better empirically than students that don't. <laughs> take the, for that for what you will. If you don't want to come to class ever, good luck with it. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, just, on a personal note, I can't wait until your sons start dating. For you to use this opportunity <laughs> cost in with all of the lectures. And for them to get dumped when they use it. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, they're going to come up like, what's going to come up? But I love, I love Trixie so much. And you're going to be like opportunity costs. <laughs> Who is the second best girl in the class? Look, darling, my love and my time are scarce. Okay? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We could have a whole show just on the marriage market <laughs> and when's the optimal time to settle. <laughs> There's a whole literature on that. <laughs> oh my God. That, 
Oh, Alka, that is how we are going to make our first million. We are going going to optimize that. That is going to be fantastic. When to settle. (laughs) It's a great name of a great dating service. It seriously is. Time to settle. It's time to settle. (laughs) Alka, I talk about marriage markets a lot in in my classes. I, I do a lot of interdisciplinary political science, economics, et cetera. And students hate it when I talk about marriage like that. <laughs> well, to an economist, it's very romantic. <laughs> and to, I saw the utility in my husband. Right? Well, you know. For a political scientist, it's just realistic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, nobody's going to get everything. So you might as well compromise. <laughs> so just for the record, we had the most lively conversation yet with an economist. So anybody trying to knock economics. Yeah, yeah. that is totally true. That is absolutely true. Thank you, Alka. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This has been tremendous fun. And when the economy um, just shoots up like a skyrocket, we're going to bring you back on. All right, because it'll probably be because of me. I think that's obvious. We know the Bidens listen. Yeah, Yeah, they do. (laughs) Go Jill. Jill's following you. That's my cubby mate. I remember her. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Alka. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet Take a liking to you.